Okay, welcome back to Bible Braced. We're in Lesson 27. We have been talking about a lot of things so far this week. We've been talking about um, the what was happening with John the Baptist and his arrest and Jesus deciding to leave where he, his disciples were baptizing to head further into Galilee, the potential political motivations at play with Herod and his marrying his niece who was already married to his brother. Like what a mess. This whole thing was very convoluted and disgusting and that John the Baptist spoke out against that and was arrested. And then we get into, um, the cultural background of the Samaritans and what the country of Samaria really was, what its origins were, why Jews would have had a hard time interacting with Samaritans, let alone traveling through their region, staying in their towns, etc. Good Jews did not do that. And there was a lot of tension between the two of them. And so let's go back to our text in John 4. This makes it even more bizarre, really, when Jesus says, in verse four of chapter four in John, and it was necessary for him to go through Samaria. I remember studying that from last week, that this is an idea of a burden, like he is bound to go almost. And so let's go ahead and read this passage over again in light of what we've learned about the Samaritans in our last episode. So verse five says, now he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the piece of land that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, because he had become tired from the journey, simply sat down at the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And we know from last week, it was about noon, right? And a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me water to drink. For his disciples had gone away into town so that they could buy food. So the Samaritan woman said to him, how do you, being a Jew, ask from me water to drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so here she's bringing up what we've been studying, right? Like there are centuries of tension (laughs) between the two ethnicities. And she's like, why would you ask me for something to drink? And then Jesus doesn't really respond to her implications regarding the differences in their belief systems, the differences in their ethnicities, the difference in their culture. He just says, if you had known the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me water to drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then the woman says, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. From where then do you get this living water? It must have sounded kind of funny to her that the man who's asking her for water is telling her that if she knew to ask him rightly, he would give her living water. And that's why she's kind of like, "Uh, you don't even have any equipment to get water out of. Where are you going to get this? And then she says, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Because again, the Samaritans have shared ancestry, right? They are descended from Jacob. They were mixed racially. They were Jews uh, mixed with the Jewish population and with other nations. And so they do share a common ancestor. Though that probably rankled Jews to have Samaritans say, our father Jacob. (laughs) Um, But she says, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank from him himself and his sons and his livestock. And Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Again, Jesus is very focused. He knows exactly what he wants to talk to her about. He knows exactly what he wants to draw out of her. She's kind of throwing up distractions, it seems like from the main point, or maybe she just doesn't understand. And Jesus continues to just come right back to the heart of the issue. He's not getting caught up in the ethnic conversation, the cultural religious custom conversation. He's not taking the bait as far as him being better than Jacob, 
which obviously he is, <laughs> right? He's really focused here on her soul and on what she really needs. And so he says in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of this water, which I will give to him, will never be thirsty for eternity. But the water which I will give to him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. And the woman says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or come here to draw water. And so either she's not getting it or she's choosing not to get that he's talking about non-physical water here. He's talking about a spiritual awakening, a spiritual satisfaction. And so he says to her again, it doesn't seem to be following the same line of thinking that he's been pounding on about her soul, but it is because he's bringing up her lifestyle. He's bringing up what's happening in her past, as well as being able to speak to the fact that he knows exactly what she's done and he knows exactly what her life is like. And so he's showing himself to have power in that way. So he says to her, go call your husband and come here. And then the woman answered and said to him, I do not have a husband. And Jesus says to her, this is like a side note here, but this is the first time she seems to really answer him. <laughs> like she's kind of throwing up things and like having other conversations and then her kind of saying, oh, I don't have a husband. It just seems like the first straight answer he gets from her. And Jesus says to her, you have said rightly, I do not have a husband. For you have had five husbands and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truthfully. And then she says, sir, I see that you are a prophet. And then she immediately switches topic, right? Like she's, again, maybe she's just in awe of what he said and the fact that he has prophetic power, but it seems like she's bringing up another argument here, right? Because she goes right into our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where it is necessary to worship. It seems like she's distracting from her own soul again, right? She's putting up defenses. She's saying, oh, here's a popular topic for us to argue about, right? <laughs> like, let me throw this up there and, and get him distracted from my soul. Because I don't think she wants to talk about the fact that she's had five husbands and that the man she's with now is not her husband. Jesus says to her, believe me, woman, that an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. This verse makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? When we consider the fact that her ancestors were being killed by lions sent from God, and out of fear of being killed, they brought this random priest in who taught them basically how to add Yahweh to all their other collection of gods. And so they just added him, right? And so Jesus is right. He's like, you guys worship what you don't even know. You don't understand who God really is. And then he says, we worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But then verse 23, but an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For indeed, the father seeks such people to be his worshipers. And this again, this statement of Jesus seems to really hit me differently now that I've been reading about the history of the Samaritans because they were worshiping not really in spirit or in truth, right? They were worshiping out of fear. They were adding him to what they were doing, kind of like, you know, adhering to your neighborhood's standards of how your yard's supposed to look or what kind of color your siding can have if you live in one of those neighborhoods. Like, you know, maybe you don't really like that your 
yard has to be mowed to like half an inch or whatever crazy rules these people come up with. But you are doing it because you're maintaining the standard that's been placed on you by where you live and what's expected of you. And that can be like that for those who are raised in a faith, right? And the Jews really struggle with, are we doing something out of obedience? Are we doing something out of true repentance and true worship? Are we just checking a box or are we actually living lives that serve God and that want his best and that want his glory? And so it is interesting to see this contrast here where he says that, you know, Jesus is really speaking to the fact that God wants people to worship in spirit and truth and that indeed the father seeks such people to be his worshipers. He doesn't just want lip service. He doesn't just want to be added to your pantheon of gods, you know, along with whatever else you're serving, your own success, your career, having a certain amount in the bank account, you know, having kids that act a certain way, having a marriage that looks a certain way, like all these things that we add as our gods to our pantheon. And then we just throw God in there and we add him to our worship rituals. And that's not what he wants. He wants true worshipers who will worship the father in spirit and truth for indeed the father seeks such people to be his worshipers. And then verse 24 says, God is spirit and the ones who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. It's interesting to see spirit and in truth added here. Because again, we're talking about not just physical adherence to a law or to a commandment, right? We're not just kneeling on the ground because we're supposed to kneel a certain amount of times a day and face a certain place when we pray. He wants us to worship him in spirit and our and our true heart of hearts, our true soul, our true understanding. And he wants us to worship him in truth. And that's where it comes down to, it really matters what we do, right? It matters who we think God is. It matters how we believe that we will go to heaven. It matters how we worship God. We can't just say, well, I have pure motives, you know? Well, <laughs> he wants you to have pure motives, right? He wants you to worship in spirit, but he also wants you to worship in truth and truth matters. And we have to adhere ourselves to God's standard with how we worship. You know, we can't just get into this mode of like, oh, well, it doesn't matter to God. I can turn on whatever music I want and I can just be outside in nature. And that's me worshiping God. It's like, well, that's you worshiping yourself. And if you've made yourself God, then yes, you are worshiping your God. But God expects truth. He expects you to worship him according to the standards he's placed, which is, you know, he set up the church for a certain purpose. He set up the Holy Spirit to indwell us and to and to change us and to give us the gifts that he gives us for that institution that he set up, the local church. He tells us to make disciples and that what do we do with our disciples? Titus 2 says we are to teach them what accords with sound doctrine. We're to teach them what the truth is. Truth matters. We can't just say, oh, I just feel good about this or, oh, I was taught this or, you know, this seems right in this moment. You have to have a standard of truth and God gave us one. So there's no guesswork here. Like we know how he wants to be worshiped and we need to, we need to line up. You know, he already set the standard. We're the ones that are supposed to line up to that. So that's just really interesting coming out of this background of Samaria, especially. And so verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming the one called Christ. Whenever that one comes, he will proclaim all things to us. I'm pausing again here just because they know the Messiah is coming and the Samaritans only think the first five books of the Bible are God's word. 
And that is really interesting because a lot of our really great Messiah passages that are prophesying regarding his coming, I think of like Isaiah, I think of Micah, Ezekiel, like these passages that talk about the coming Savior, the coming Messiah, the coming King, right? And a lot of these passages are not included in the Samaritan's Bible, if you will. And so that's really interesting that they still know that there's a Messiah coming, even though they only hold to the first five books of the Bible. And hey, Genesis 3, you know, when Jesus is talking with um, Adam and Eve and the serpent, Jesus says like, you know, and we believe that is Jesus because he seems to be the one who is God in Genesis interacting with creation and with mankind. But let's go there real quick and just look at that passage again in light of the statement. Genesis 3. All right. So Genesis 3, when Jesus, the Lord God here, let's see here. All right. And then verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let's go to Genesis 3.15 in my Lexham English Bible. Let's see if we have any word roots we can kind of dig down on on this passage. Genesis 3.15. I will put hostility between you and between the woman and between your offspring and between her offspring. He will strike you on the head and you will strike him on the heel. Strike here. What's this word in the Hebrew? Bruise is another word for this. Interesting. So the idea here is there is someone coming. There's someone coming from the seat of a woman who will ultimately deliver the crushing blow, right? He will strike you on the head, even though you're going to strike him on the heel. So it's kind of interesting to look into, um, especially considering the fact that the Samaritan woman knows that the Messiah is coming. And that's really interesting considering how little information they had to go on as Samaritans. Okay, let's go ahead and pick this up again in lesson 28.